John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry number 865.1C0924, certificate number 28924, the Olympic Marathon of 1904. Do you like the Olympics, John? Are you an Olympic fan? Do you generally have Olympic fever every two to four years? When I was a kid, I was hugely into the Olympics, the Leroy Neiman era of uh, florid, yeah, expressionistically California. painted Olympics. I think I'm I'm exactly the age that does not remember the Munich Olympics, but does remember the um, seventy six, the seventy six Montreal, Montreal, yeah, Nadia. That's right, Nadia Comaneci. I'm a little younger than you, and I have an Olympic gap because of Jimmy Carter right. boycotting in 1980. So I, you know, there's this eight year. Olympic wasteland, which was harder on the athletes than for me, but you know, I'm a victim too, I guess. <laughs> well, harder on the whole history of the Olympics. Do, <laughs> do you, but you remember when the Olympic year was winter, summer in the same year. Yeah. And that actually seemed, I guess in hindsight, it does make more sense to shake it up. Yeah, but I don't like it. I, I preferred it when the Olympics were like, it's 1976 and it's going to be Olympics all year. I do too. But is that just because that's how it was when we were kids and everything's better when you're kids? Well, or... Just that the Olympics every two years makes it seem like ah, it's less. It's special. always the Olympics. Yeah, it's the Olympics again. It's right. like, is it my turn to take out the trash again? Well, is, it, then, is it the luge again? Then it's like X Games, and there's so many different Olympics now. Also, the fact that the Winter Olympics are kind of the lame ones means that every two years you've got, you know, oh, it's the Olympics this year. Oh, but they're in, you know, Sochi. These must be the lame ones. Wait a minute. It's in a I, city I've I, never heard of. I absolutely refuse to uh, to accept that the Winter Olympics are the lame ones. No, the Winter, uh, the winter Olympics are the lame ones. No, I grew up in Alaska. The Winter Olympics oh, were the only I ones see. we cared about. Like they have the real sports, like biathlon. My, I, I have actually had friends in the Olympics. Wow. But they're all from the ski sports. Like, a, like Tommy Moe, who won gold for... Uh, for the USA in the giant slalom and downhill. Yeah, I think that's right. He was like a guy that I, I grew up skiing with. We actually went to see Metallica together. I didn't realize this would be such a great chance for you to name drop if I would insult yeah. the Winter Olympics. Listen, if if uh, if you get a chance to name drop a gold medalist, you but take that opportunity. I feel like that's evidence that winter is lamer because I don't hang out with, um, you know, 
Jamaican long distance runners because the summer races are actually a little more elite. These I are see. not just bums from your childhood <laughs> running around. These are actual athletes in real stadiums, so you don't know them. You I know? see how it is. But, just being friends with an Olympian sort of denigrates the whole But Tommy Moe is a pretty good one. It's not like you know the, some random third guy in a bobsled team. Like No, he was, legit he was on our celeb. ski team, and he's a couple years younger than me, but even when I was 12 and he was 10, he was visibly a better skier than anybody else. He just took a different line down the mountain and just had a lot of confidence on the skis. The first Olympics I remember as a kid was 84 in LA and it was an American homegrown Olympics. So but everybody all, went nuts. Yeah, it, but also the Russians boycotted it. It's not right. a legit Olympics. But do you remember the story like where, um, I remember this personally, we, uh, we would go to McDonald's a lot and McDonald's had a giveaway at the time where you'd get maybe a scratch card or something. And if uh, the US medaled in the event on the card, you'd get a free McChicken or a free Big Mac or something. And they had done all the cards in all these events that we never meddled in. <laughs> because, yeah, what are, the, what are the odds that we're going to do anything in women's swimming against these muscular Soviet block types? And then when all the Eastern European, all the Iron countries, Warsaw Pact countries boycotted, suddenly McDonald's had to give away McNuggets hand over fist and they just lost millions. Oh, that's genius. On this promotion. Well, like the Leroy Neiman thing was also a McDonald's promotion. Leroy, for those not in the know, uh, yeah, they're I, in the I don't future. think we should assume that these Futurians we're talking to have Leroy Neiman, Michael Jordan posters I, on their bedroom wall. I have to assume even, even maybe the giant <laughs> insects of the future are, uh, are still into Michael Jordan. I doubt they're into the oil painting stylings of Leroy Neiman. Could his colorful splashes of paint survive any apocalypse? I uh, guess only our listeners know. For so sure. he was a sports. This is a thing that doesn't even exist in our current time, <laughs> which is a famous sports <laughs> painter. Uh, he who, are your, who are your 10 favorite sports painters, John? <laughs> I like uh, Reggie Jackson Pollock and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he was a big deal, and he did an entire series of paintings, like very kinetic paintings, sort of uh, like in a not impressionistic, really, because they were sort of also pretty realistic. But yeah, it's like the you know the the faces are actually like photorealistic, but then they've got all these sort of splotchy splotches of color and yeah. you know lens flare kind of a vibe going on. So he made these, he did these paintings for the Olympics and then they were given away or maybe they were on placemats. No, no, no. They were like prints. You could get a, you'd go to McDonald's, buy a Happy Meal and get a Leroy Neiman print. That's a funny part of our childhood when you would go to fast food and get a, like a, a glass or something or go to the service station and come home with a glassware or flatware or something. I mean, here in my house, I have maybe half a dozen to a dozen banks, little piggy banks that are in the shape of houses or cars and you would get those when you open an account at a bank. They'd give you a piggy bank shaped like a thing that you were presumably saving to buy. And that works on a very small segment of the population, but it sure seems like you might be one of those people. Well, yeah. If you have dozens of these still. I mean, it, back, in, back then you could buy a house by putting a quarter uh, every once in a while in your little house-shaped piggy bank. Sure. At the end of the month, you can, you can go buy a yeah. $10,000 <laughs> starter house in Levittown. I feel like we may have gone somewhat far afield from the Olympic marathon of 1904. Well, the Olympic marathon of 1904 is kind of a, it's like a foundational moment in the modern Olympics. Well, we're talking about, you know, the modern Olympics as a splashy media phenomenon, you know, just a multi-billion dollar thing with, uh, you know, lights and fireworks and flags and incredibly elaborate, lavish opening ceremonies and uh, Muhammad Ali, Bob Costas and uh, John Tesh music, probably. I, I don't even know. 
But, you know, it's this massive spectacle, unparalleled spectacle, you know, to make the 4th of July look just lame. And that was not always the case. Well, and it's also like a glo- like a uh, an event of global unity, right? The countries from all around the world come to participate in what is supposed to be the non-commercial side of sport. Which is kind of a joke now. I mean, nothing's more jingoistic than the Olympics. Nothing has more money pumped into it. Right. Nothing has more, you know, pampered big-name athletes. But as an athlete, traditionally, you weren't allowed to be a professional, right? You couldn't, you couldn't profit from your athleticism and compete in the Olympics. Right. That's the original Olympic tradition. And I think even in our time, you know, I don't know if the Olympic movement has survived to our listeners are, but in our time, you know, it's hard to imagine the Olympics as a, as a little struggling startup. Huh. But that's essentially what it was at the beginning of the 20th century. Well, let me ask you this, right? The Olympics are, and, and again, for the Futurians, it may seem like time is compressed. Time is a flat circle. It may feel very compressed between what we call ancient Greece and what to you is ancient St. Louis. Ancient America. Yeah, to right? them, they're like, well, it's probably, they probably, these people knew each other. Sure. It's just like the Spartans uh, were in St. Louis. Shakespeare, you know, knew St. Augustine, which he did. Stegosauruses and Tyrannosaurus rexes were further apart in time than we are from Tyrannosaurus rexes. Is that right? Yeah. More millions of years elapsed between the Stegosaurus and the T Rex than between us and the dinosaurs. I see things all the time. Uh, where the two are represented as sharing an ecosystem. Sure, they're just hanging out in children's books and Fantasia and whatnot. In fact, it would be like you and I just, uh, you know, hanging out with trilobites. Interesting. I feel like I am hanging out with trilobites sometimes, but I'm a rock musician. Are you the guy that goes into the, goes into the bar and is like, look at all these trilobites here tonight. Let's go somewhere else. Uh, so, but, but the Olympics, the original Olympics, it's a Greek word. And the original uh, Olympics were a Greek event, sort of like an amateur sporting event. Sure. They loved athletic events in the nude, those Greeks. In the they, nude. They would look forward to this all year. They'd leave their crops and come to the big stadium and, uh, and have races and whatnot. And then there was a two-millennia interregnum, and then we began the Olympics again. And it seems like one of these things that maybe some boosters somewhere some guys in straw boaters exactly said like you know you know what we need rich guys at a at some kind of crew event <laughs> we Say. should bring back the olympics <laughs> they're all talking through <laughs> megaphones at each other <laughs> get that out of my face uh yeah um it's funny to think that maybe the only reason we know about the ancient olympics is because there was a, a marketing push in our century like did shakespeare know about the olympic games Interesting. Uh, maybe it wasn't even famous you know Maybe you had to be a classical scholar to be like, the Greeks used to get together and throw javelins in a stadium. It was nuts, you know. What, when was the first like modern that. Olympics? 1896. Okay, so pretty recent, or pretty recent history to someone in 1904. Sure, it, this, these would have been, um, I think there was some kind of, uh, no, this would have been the third one, I think. Wow. And I was in Greece last year, and one thing I didn't know is that the Athens Olympics in 1896, they brought it back in its original home, Athens. They were a big splashy thing. The Greeks won some medals. They loved the idea that their culture was being celebrated on the world stage. But then like 1900 and 1904 were like barely Olympics. Oh, really? Yeah. They, uh, they did not have any of even the minimal pomp and circumstance and laurel wreaths of the 1896 event. And it wasn't until 
Athens held a 10th anniversary celebration in 1906 that the Olympics kind of got their groove back. Oh, I get it. So in 1900, uh, in Paris, I want to say, and 1904 in St. Louis, um, the games were really just sort of an athletic side event to the World's Fair, like some kind of expo was going on that year, and they were like, well, let's have a tennis tournament too. Right. And so that was the Olympics that year. And the St. Louis World's Fair was a big, it was a big event in 1904. It was the 100th anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah. And so now we look back and we're like, wait, the Olympics were in St. Louis? Yeah. Like, it seems a little weird, right? It seems <laughs> like maybe, um, you know, can you imagine if today the Olympics are announced and it's like Fresno yeah. or whatever? <laughs> but but um, somebody needed to pick pick up the slack. And this was like the big event for St. Louis. St. Louis was a, probably a, a more of a major world city at the time. And it was the departure place for the, for the West, right? It was... Um, you know, that's why the Gateway Arch is there. That's the Jefferson Expansion National Monument. That's like where America started to grow. Right. And the, and it's central within the Louisiana Purchase. Yes. Um, and so, you know, to celebrate the uh, 100th anniversary of America doubling in size or whatever, they, they hold a World's Fair in St. Louis. And just as they've done in Paris, they have a Olympic, uh, like a sideshow. Like they staple it to it. Huh? <laughs> yeah. And there's all this weird, uh, like in, so here's how little it was like in Paris in, uh, 1900, I guess there's a story about an American woman who sees an ad for a golf tournament in the paper. She's some socialite type, some Henry James young thing who golfs in Sarasota in the winter. And she's like, Oh, mother and I will go to the golf tournament. So they go and golf nine holes and she wins. <laughs> Margaret Abbott wins this golf tournament and feels, you know, I'm sure very good about herself. Uh, gets, I'm sure she gets a crystal bowl or something. She goes to her grave not knowing that she's an Olympic medalist. She's America's first woman gold medalist. And she died in the 50s, like never even knowing. No. She thought she had just uh, done this one day golf tournament she saw on the paper. <laughs> and when was she, when was this, uh, this discovered or when was she rehabilitated as America's first gold medalist? I think pretty recently, first... you know, sports nerds, you know, assembling complete lists of medalists in Olympic history are like, wait, there was golf that year. Wait, there was women's golf that year. Who is this person? Wow. And they find out that Margaret Abbott never, you know, they tell her descendants, Hey, your mom was uh, the first gold medalist. And they're like, wait, what now? <laughs> so that was the Olympics. You could compete and not even know you were in the Olympics. Right. The so the Olympic marathon, which is kind of the classic Greek, like the top sport of the Greek Olympics. And it was invented for the 1896 Olympics. It was not a thing. They were just like, since we're here, let's reproduce this legendary thing where the guy runs back from the battle of marathon to Athens and we'll make that our long distance race. And that'll be our big finale. So the marathon is essentially just invented as a gimmick, mm -hmm. as a marketing gimmick at the, at the first Olympics. It's like the Iditarod for people. But the Iditarod is a real thing, right? It was a well, medicine the, run or but something? But the run from Marathon originally was the, was a real thing. He ran back to Athens to say, we won! It's uh, Plutarch records it as history, but by that time it's just centuries later. Right. So who Again. knows how reliable, it'd be like if I write the first account of uh, Ponce de Leon doing something, like really how accurate is that going to be, Ken? Plutarch was as far away from the Battle of Marathon <laughs> as the Battle of Marathon was from, from uh, trilobites. A lot of people don't know this, but Plutarch was a T-Rex. He had to hold his pen and little, <laughs> his stylus in little flimsy arms. <laughs> That's why we have so little of his writing. So, but the Olympic uh, or the, the marathon in 1904 also had a kind of sideshow aspect. Yeah, it was li like this sort of thro hastily thrown together golf tournament. This was not some world-class thing with prelims and heats and whatnot, you know. It was just like, who wants to run 26 miles in St. Louis? And the distance had not been fixed, by the way. Back, the, you know, today you see all these a-holes with 26.2 stickers on their cars, you know. Like, oh, is that what that means? 
Did oh. you just think that was? I thought it was a biblical reference. It was something to do with like that, what their tire pressure was. You're like, if I knew more about Jesus, I would know their tire pressure. Yeah, it's like I'm running twenty six point two. I'm very proud of my low tire pressure. My other tire is also an honor student. Uh, no, that's the length of the modern marathon. It's, it's twenty six it. miles, three hundred and eighty five yards. But oh, that's not... I, I suddenly don't like those uh, Subarus even more now. <laughs> but that's not the actual distance from Marathon to Athens. Like it, in the early years of the marathon, it was just like, let's mark a course and it would be roughly 25 or 26 miles. I think it was standardized in London in 1908. Wait a minute. We're running out of O's. It had to be. 408. Is it 08 or, or 1912? At the London Olympics, let's say. Yeah. The course got a little longer because of where the Royal box was going to be. I think like the Royals wanted to sit at the other side of the stadium with a better view. And, you know, in typical aristocratic fashion, it's like, yes, we'll make, let's make those, <laughs> those Greek men run a little farther to get to us. Because they want to end right in front of the royals. Right. That's yeah. the finish line. Well, and they probably sat on that side so the sun wasn't in their eyes. I'm sure it's something like that. There's even a legend about the start of the race where they moved the box so the princess, the princess of Wales could like hear her baby crying from a window in Buckingham Palace or something. Hmm. Like these guys literally would not walk across the room to. Uh, that does seem a little bit like a legend rather than. But, but all right, I'll give it, I'll give it to history. <laughs> As Plutarch wrote <laughs> about the princess of Wales's baby. So by this Olympics, it was, it was, a it was just a, you know, roughly 26 mile course. There was no scientific accuracy and apparently it was just a nightmare experience. Well, so who were the competitors, if not like professional marathon runners? It wasn't just contest winners. Like there, there were some people who had, you know, won or finished highly in the Boston Marathon or the New York Marathon. Apparently in the wake of the uh, Athens Marathon in 1896, some city marathons had started up. Oh, so, so the Boston Marathon is older than, than what we're talking about here. Sure, yeah. The, 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 uh, the big American marathons predate this. So there were some people who at least knew they could run 26 <laughs> miles and had done so in the last few months. But others were just sort of like, uh, well, sure, I'll try that guys like there was a, a bricklayer you know one of our one of our heroes here is a bricklayer named fred lors who had like won a five mile foot race and was like oh great you qualify for the marathon just do that again five times basically <laughs> he'd never run 26 miles presumably in his life I, I don't know i don't think so there's another guy felix carbajal is a mailman from cuba who uh somehow just you know gets a decides to become a long distance olympic racer <laughs> This, gets, is the, this is the guy that showed up in long pants, right? Oh yeah, that's true. He, uh, <laughs> he gets to, uh, New Orleans and I think he loses all his gear, like in a dice game. Like, is it, like apparently New Orleans has not changed at all. Like <laughs> within 10 minutes of arrival, he immediately gets fleeced and ha he just, so she shows up for the marathon in like, you know, looking like some shabby Italian man from a neorealist movie. You know, he's got like a button down shirt and a jacket and long pants. And you're, you are, I'm watching you now and you're imitating a guy with a, with a stick over his shoulder and a little bundle, like a bindle right. tied at the end. He has a bindle for some reason, a polka dot bindle. Like, why do you even have that? Um, and I think, uh, this, the story goes that one of the American racers, you know, they didn't give him they didn't have spare clothes to him, but they, they took his long pants and cut them with scissors so that he at least had shorts to run in oh, wow. because it was just mercilessly hot this day. It's St. Louis in the summer. I don't know right. if you have any experience. But right. Well, let's talk a little bit to Futurians. Um, St. Louis is a, is a, it's in the middle of our, of our continent. It's probably uh, like on the edge of an inland sea in your day. 
We don't know. We don't know. But I'm. It could, I'm, it could be at the edge of the meteor crater. <laughs> it could be at the center of the dirty bomb. We don't know. Sorry, cards fans. But it was a. Uh, it was a city that was renowned for its uh, extremely hot, humid summers, and also unpleasant winters. I think the uh, heat and humidity were in the both in the nineties for this race. It's uh, you can see why we don't have the Olympics in places like St. Louis anymore. Yeah. It's just funny to me. It's like, do you remember when Ted Turner had those like vanity Goodwill games or whatever? Sure. And they'd just be in weird places. We had one here in Seattle, didn't we? Oh, did we? Yeah, I think, I think we had a Goodwill game. I think you're right. Yeah. So yeah, it's just like La Paz, Bolivia, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Come to Warsaw. So it's, you know, it's just, and uh, but in the old days, the Olympics could just be in Antwerp or something. Who knows? Right. So you've got this ragtag group of people that are just like lining up on a, on a, like a chalk line somewhere. Yeah. And there was really no dedicated course. I mean, the runners had, you know, they sort of sketched off this uh, path, but I think they wanted to make it like, like the final level of a video game. Like they wanted it to be exciting. So the, the course is seven Hills. Uh, oh, just like this, the like famous Rome, seven Hills of Rome. Is, is St. Louis hilly? I, I, I wouldn't have thought of it as a seven Hill kind of a city. Well, the Mississippi River flows through St. Sure, Louis. Sure, you've got the banks of the Mississippi. And the hills are not, you know, we in the West, there are some requirements what qualifies as a hill. Is that true? There's a, well, just, there's I mean, a committee? You're, you're not going to call something a hill that's just like a, just like a bump. But St. Louis is, let's say, rolling hills. It's not like Pittsburgh, where it feels like it feels hilly there. I feel like I've only been down by the river. But apparently this course was very grueling mm. seven hills and uh just running through traffic um people just dodging street cars and uh little boys pushing hoops with a stick or, <laughs> you know yeah a guy on a on newsies. a large bike uh what, what's the large tire bike called <laughs> right the, the penny farthing the penny bike farthing. With, with one big wheel and one small yeah so it's it's just like that it's like a the street scene from the flashbacks in godfather part two but then a marathon comes through that so not super convenient because it was just like, and nobody knew you have to imagine it was not, you know, right. something ever would be like, Oh, Hey, it's marathon day. Like right. nobody really knew what was going on. They knew the world's fair was going on and there was all this crazy ethnic dancing and pole climbing, all this weird cultural exhibitions. Um, probably super racist. I can only assume. I think I think conventional contemporary thought about the St. Louis expo was that it was, it was the heyday of the, um, what would you call it? The imperialist cultural anthropology years where they had savages come and do their, do their native dance. Put your hair in a bone. Uh, we don't do that. Yeah, you do now. <laughs> right. And I think people from, from kind of all around the world in different, bringing people from different cultures, but sort of doing that like loincloth, um, reconstruct their quote unquote village out of straw. And then they would just sit there like, an exhibit like a, it's a zoo basically it's yeah. it's terrible so so there's a lot of there there's a lot of um revisionism about how bad the 1904 uh fair was just because it it was guilty of these these real like imperialist crimes the most racist world's fair that's it, st louis is still proud to this day well there were a few racist world's fairs maybe I mean, they were all super racist <laughs> pretty racist back then but interestingly the St. Louis World's Fair was also the debut. I think at the time, the anthropology stuff was not what people cared about. It was the debut of... It's a food. Is that all right? No. Oh. It was the first display of private automobile. 
the first time that you that anyone had ever seen a car wow that you could conceivably buy it was you know the Wright brothers flew their first flight in December of 1903 so this was the introduction of powered flight was on display here. That's funny that the airplane is invented and many people have not seen a car. That's interesting how close they are. Yeah, right at the same time. Huh. This was the inter St. Louis Street uh, World's Fair was the introduction of the electric streetcar, which didn't exist prior to this. Streetcars were pulled were by they? horses. Oh, something. really? There's no powered streetcars? Not even. Well, or maybe coal. Coal. But that seems weird. That does seem weird. It was the introduction, I think, of the radio. Like, this was an enor this was an incredible moment in history where all these oh the x-ray machine like you know we we, for, we <laughs> hey kids come to the fair <laughs> there's going to be an x-ray machine <laughs> we forget that like the the electric light and gasoline powered cars and airplanes and dirigibles and x-rays and radio like it all kind of happened at once, this was like the Thomas Edison years where we made enormous strides, technological strides. And so I think this expo was, it was a big deal for people because they were wandering through these exhibition halls and it was one miracle after another. I think there was actually like an air race between an airplane, a dirigible, and a guy, a guy with with tissue paper wings flapping <laughs> and like a balsa wood airplane. And there, I think the requirement was that they, uh, it was like, who can do this course at an average of 14 miles an hour? And, and nobody won. It's like <laughs> <laughs> it was everybody, the, nobody could manage it. Like there's a guy in a dirigible and a guy with pedaling a bike with, you it, know. It's like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. <laughs> was, was it that Snidely Whiplash guy? Was he like in the dirigible trying to puncture the biplane wing or whatever? <laughs> Dudley Do-Right again. And then the, the dog or whatever. Oh uh, no, S Snidely Whiplash is the Dudley Do-Right guy. Muttley is, the, who's the guy that owns Muttley? Well, Muttley is, oh, not Muttley. Muttley's the dog that's like. Rah, 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 yeah, no, you're thinking the, the, um, the Bullwinkle dog was like Poindexter or something. He had glasses no, and he knew everything. He you're was kind thinking of, of Sherman and Sherman, Peabody. Right. No, I'm thinking of the evil, uh, the evil Hanna Barbera guy. Like he wears um, oh, aviator oh. glasses. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's Dick kind of, Dastardly, he's, not Snidely Whiplash. He wears like a purple hat, right? He's kind of like uh, he's, he's super fly. He's like yeah. yeah. You mean Dick Dastardly? Dick Dastardly and Muttley. Yeah, Dick Dastardly is is he's he's got his look is sort of half uh, those magnificent men and those flying machines and half like. 70s pimp. Mm -hmm. It's it's a look that has aged really well. <laughs> well, uh, we should get to the actual marathon. Which well, we, which oh, we hang on. Why don't we take a short uh, break for our um, uh, sponsors from the past? Just what I was going to say, John. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. 
Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout okay so you were saying the actual marathon so the cars uh, that had just been invented. There actually were cars following along in the, the race they, they, the, on this hot, humid day, kicking up dust. And the organizer of the marathon, apparently, uh, he's some kind of Joseph Mengele type. He, uh, he wanted to experiment on the runners. So there's almost no water stations. There's not a bunch of people giving out orange slices like today. There's like a water station like halfway through and then another one near the finish line. What, what kind of experiment is that? Uh, to see what happens to a bunch of Cuban bricklayers and mailmen if you don't give them water and make them run 26 miles. <laughs> like, I honestly think it's like the limits of the human condition. Let's oh. see. Let's see what these specimens can do. You know? Oh, right. We still call athletes fine specimens, but to this guy, like he was like, they're actual specimens. So he's riding alongside in a car, like drinking, <laughs> drinking cold water out of a jug and like uh, refusing it to he's them. He's got a clipboard and a white coat. He's taking notes, <laughs> you know, and he's just very interested in, in dehydration and stuff. And he, I guess he wants to see it in action. <laughs> Everybody needs a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> Hobbies include dehydration. Um, and it, the race almost immediately just goes terribly. Um, you know, all this dust is getting kicked up, so the runners are breathing in dust, and uh, their lungs even start to hemorrhage. Ugh. Yeah, like, so people are just coughing up blood on the roadside. Um, they're dodging, again, everything, streetcars, uh, foot traffic. The There's a bunch of uh, South Africans. I think some of these cultural exhibition guys have decided, have joined the race, and uh, one of them just gets immediately chased off path by a, a mile by a pack of wild dogs. <laughs> You don't see that a whole lot in the Olympics today. Well, you don't even see it in St. Louis today. Like how oh, there's just packs of wild dogs running around. Yeah, as, as you know. I guess 1904. Yeah, maybe they're uh, they must be sort of on the outskirts of town, and there's just a bunch of uh, yeah, uh, you know, alley dogs from a cartoon. You know, the cat <laughs> right. the cat's pulling out the the fish with the head and the skeleton. Back when mice lived in little holes, exactly, L in little little perfect little arch. It was a simpler time. Man and wild dogs lived in harmony, but not during this race and uh felix carvajal the uh mexican uh, the cuban mailman um you know he's having a good time he is some people in a car i think give him apricots and later he sees an apple orchard and so he pulls off and start, just starts eating apples and then he doesn't uh feel i think he lays down maybe to take a nap and he starts to not feel so great the you know eating green apples off the tree gives him cramps so this guy just gets sick in an apple orchard you know i have some firsthand experience of this uh, I, I, I went on a long walk, uh, as we've discussed and will discuss many, many times. Uh, I went on a long walk one time and I stopped a few days and just gorged myself on tree fruit during the 
harvest time. How, how does that work? Is it, uh, were you looking around for an angry farmer holding a rake or did you feel like you were? No, you're kind of, you're out way out in the middle of nowhere, walking along a road and there are orchards or there are trees kind of lining the streets, right? They plant fruit trees in, in places just as, as, um, to cool the street, I guess. Sure. And, uh, and there were, there was a day where the cherries were just, there were these rainier cherries just all the way across this whole day I was walking across the Czech Republic and there were just cherries hanging down and I couldn't stop myself. So Central Europe is full of, I guess Central European bakeries, it's always cherry, cherry. there's cherry dumplings and cherry pastries and they and love cherries, huh? Fan, well, cherries and walnuts, there are walnuts everywhere too. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with cherries and walnuts. That's uh Except that's if you eating. eat like 15 pounds of cherries, which I did on one particular day. And I actually had to lay down in the grass because my stomach was so, I don't know if you've ever gorged on cherries, but it's a terrible, terrible feeling. I, uh, I have, you know, every summer here in the beautiful state of Washington, it's Rainier cherries for about a month and you really got to eat them. And sometimes when I take that too seriously, you know, you can't eat a lot of cherries if you're going to be far from a restroom, for example. And you were walking across the Czech Republic. Yeah. That must've been fun. Famously no restrooms. But... <laughs> That's what it says on their, on their, on their flag. It's on the seal. But I was way out. There were no restrooms, but there, that's also an advantage to being way out because you know, the earth is your restroom. Moving um, on. The American favorite was not Fred Lors, the bricklayer. It was a guy named Thomas Hicks who had, who had won marathons in the past. So he um, was a, he was a ringer. He was a legit marathon. There were a few actual marathoners in here. It wasn't just all, um, you know, like a reality show. It wasn't big brother. Right. Um, but, uh, even he couldn't do it in this heat, you know, around the nine or 10 mile mark, he's just begging for, uh, water. And of course that's not how the course is laid out. His hand, even his coach, I guess is, is in on the, the gag. <laughs> And won't give him water. Instead, what they start to do is they start to rinse out his mouth with a mixture of egg whites and strychnine in, of rat poison. Why? At the time, and I think maybe this is true, strychnine in small quantities was believed to be a stimulant. Yeah. So, you know, let's get, this guy needs a little boost. You know, this was the era where, you know, they give people heroin and like, <laughs> like Bayer pharmaceutical company makes heroin and they're like, you feel like a hero. We'll call it heroin, you know, like. Right, they they right. didn't have the same enlightened attitude we do about the dangers of put a, you know just rub a little drugs. mercury inside your nose <laughs> and you'll you'll be off like a shot. <laughs> so they're actually feeding him strychnine. Why the egg whites? Uh, I assume maybe just something something moist and protein filled. I don't oh, know. Boy. Like you got Rocky coming home and making the raw egg shake. I want to go back to the past and just shake some people by the shirt collar. This guy is running 26 miles for your pleasure and you're giving him raw eggs and rat poison. Wow. Just the poor guy. So, but does strychnine actually, I mean, I don't want to start a whole new drug ep epidemic. Right. Our listeners run to their, <laughs> run to their, uh, <laughs> medicine cabinets or their, under, under the sink, under the sink, under the sink. What do you got? Yeah, I don't want to encourage anybody running a race to immediately, you know, drink rat poison. But I think it's true that in small quantities, it's a short-term huh. energy boost. Uh -huh. You know, like a Snickers. Sure. So that's what he is on, and he's not doing well. Uh, Fred Lors, the bricklayer, gets really tired out, and so he just hops in a car, a passing car, and rides for about 10 miles in a car. What are these cars? I, I was under the impression that this was like the debut. Of, maybe, maybe these are some pre-car car. Uh, it may have been, you know, it may have been the, yeah, the cars they're using to, uh, to follow the path. You know, he just jumps in some kind of pace setting car when right. nobody's looking. 
it's putting out clouds of steam. <laughs> the, and the, the, the controls are just two levers, <laughs> two levers with like grips yeah. on them. Yeah, it's an old guy with a driving cap and driving gloves. <laughs> sure, hop in. <laughs> Do you remember, uh, you know, in the, was it the seventies when a, a woman in the, was it the New York or the Boston, I think in the New York marathon actually did just this and just took the subway Yeah, from yeah. Rosie Ruiz, just hops in a subway and, uh, shows up somewhere shows up at the end. They're like, yay, she won. What a great time. Uh, that actually happened here too. Uh, Fred Lawrence got to the stadium first and was surprised to find everyone being like, you won, you won. And he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, I won. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets even to the point where Alice Roosevelt, President Roosevelt's daughter, is about to put the laurel wreath on his head. And, you know, some kid is like, I saw him get in a car. I don't know why the kid's cockney in this story. But like, he <laughs> oh, gets, was that a cockney kid? Yeah, you could you could tell <laughs> from my amazing accent. Uh, yeah, so somebody rats him out and says, this guy, I saw this guy in a car, you know, going 10 miles in a car. And I assume Alice Roosevelt whips the laurel wreath away and turns up her nose and huffs off but he very nearly got awarded as the winner wow i i am embarrassed to say that this happened to me i can't believe you have a parallel story to this i'm afraid i do i was in i was on the cross-country ski team in high school i was terrible at it and uh we started a big race and everybody we you know you, you go out into the forest right nobody can see where you are you go out into the forest and i get immediately left behind and I'm out there skiing by myself, completely behind her. I mean, everybody just, even the worst skiers from other schools were like out of sight of me. And you, I'm You just, were not a great cross-country skier. No, I don't have the build of a cross-country skier and I don't have the competitive spirit either. Can I interrupt to ask why were you on the cross-country ski team in that case? Well, I was trying to, you know, there's a social aspect to cross-country skiing. That's why I do it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... It's about the friends you make along the way. At least in Alaska, right? The, the cross-country skiers are typically not the, the snowmobilers, if you know what I'm saying. What's, right? the, what's the class distinction here? Well, the cross-country skiers are like wool sweater wearing. Oh, that's the preppy sport? Yeah, it's the preppy sport. It really is. I don't know anything about Alaska preppies. Yeah, cross-country skiing is a preppy environmentalist style. It's a leftist liberal kind of cultural <laughs> There's a political thing. divide there between really the snowmobilers is. and the cross-country skiers. Even between cross-country and downhill skiers... Uh, the cross-country skiers are the granola crunchers. I see. And which, they found out you were out stumping for McGovern and made you join the... Well, I, you know, I, I, there was this girl that I liked uh, who was very preppy and she was very cross-country ski team and I joined the cross-country ski team. Now, eventually, everybody agreed, the coach and everyone else on the team and I agreed that I would be better suited as the manager of the cross-country <laughs> ski team, which I became... And I had a great time as the manager because I, you know, I'd stand in a woolly sweater and as people would ski by, I'd go, yeah, pick it up, pick it up. Good job. Good job. That's, That's a great. good gig. It was a great gig. But when I was still racing, I got left behind. And at one point I was skiing along and I saw a bird's nest in a tree and I stopped and. You're the mailman here. Yeah. I climbed up and found this nest. And then, so now I'm carrying a nest. <laughs> you, you, you admitted the fact where you took the nest with you. Well, it was like in the middle of winter. There's no birds. Oh, it's not full right? of chirping baby birds. No, no, birds. no. It's an old nest, but it was interesting to me. And I, so I grabbed the nest and then I get lost. I'm out there. I'm lost. There are ski trails going in every direction. And it's, it's a long race. It's way out in the, in the boonies. How long is one of these races? Well, these were more than, well, I guess it was a 10 K race. Wow. Um, ski, ski, ski. And I, so I'm just kind of like out there 
picking my path and I'm trying to stay on what I think is the arterial and I missed a turn and I'm skiing and I'm skiing and I'm skiing and I'm skiing and I'm tired. I don't like skiing. And all of a sudden I hear behind me this like, and I look over my shoulder and a guy goes zooming past me and he's like decked out in spandex and he's moving. And as he goes by me, he gives, you know, he kind of looks over his shoulder at me like, what are you doing? And I was like, Durr. I mean, I was not in a spandex outfit, right? I was just in my jeans with a. With is, that, a is that what the uniform is? If you're, if you're a real hot skier. Yeah. And then sh- 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 another guy goes past me and then a third really fast and looking at me weird. And I re I kind of realize what's happened. And then I hear this fourth guy behind me and I come kind of over a hill, just lumbering, you know, I'm just lumbering come over a hill and there is the great big wide open sort of finish area, the banners, the crowd, the, you know, the finish line. And I just start to pour it on like, Oh my God, you know, like really moving. And this guy behind me, the fourth guy, uh, now it's a race between the two of us. Sure. For and, fourth. Right. And he is, he's kicking it into gear and I'm kicking it into gear. And it looks like a race, like a legitimate battle to the finish. He noses ahead and gets fourth. Oh. I come in fifth, but that's still in the points. Like your school gets points. It, so this was the finish line for your race. This was, I was wondering if you had wa- wandered into some other race altogether. Well, here's the problem. Oh. This was the second heat. <laughs> And I was in the first heat. <laughs> and so these were the top four finishers in the second heat. And I'd been out there long enough that they'd forgotten about me. <laughs> and so I came in, I was fifth and everybody like, oh my God, nobody on the team could believe it. How did you accomplish this? And it took about 20 minutes before somebody with a clipboard came over and said, you started in the first heat. That was like an hour and 40 minutes ago. Had you figured it out ahead of the uh, officials? Well, clearly I was not. I mean, I watched all the skiers go away from me. I knew that I was not in the lead. What kind of (laughs) non-Euclidean course am I skiing here? Uh, But I did when, you know, when the spirit of competition got in me, when it seemed like there's the finish line. Sure. You know, I didn't like pull over to the side and, and, and say, no, no, no. I raced. Did you set down the nest? No, I had the nest. I mean, it wasn't in my hand. It was like in my (laughs) jacket, but no, I I kept. Do you have a backpack on in the store? (laughs) Well, uh, Fred Lors also, you know, he, he says he, he does not come clean until he's caught and right. he says, Oh, it was, it was just a joke guys, you know, good one. Right. So you should, you could have tried that. Well, yeah, I knew I was guilty too, but like, I mean, I don't know. It, it all came out in the wash. Let's stop a minute for a word from our sponsors. And then in a moment, the results of this race. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash 
start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. The marathon's not a great spectator sport, right? Well, it's kind of like uh, Grand Prix. Sure. You stand in one place and every 10 minutes, somebody goes by you really fast, but... That's what I think about. You know, these little French towns, they all come out and watch a, a car go by and then two more cars and then a, another car. Yeah. The Tour de France, same yeah. thing. It's just like, and then you go, go back home, eat another bread. You're not really getting a sense of the race. No. It's weird. There's literally no place you can stand and see what's going on except watching it on TV and getting a bunch of helicopter shots. Right. Or at this uh, 1904 St. Louis Expo, you could be in a dirigible. <laughs> and you'd probably be going about the speed of the race. That was, that was the Google Earth of the time. You wouldn't look up a location on Google Earth. <laughs> you would just get in your dirigible and float a thousand meters in the air. <laughs> uh, I guess you could be in one of the cars taunting these people with, with uh, water or sponges full of poison. Right. Or whatever they were allowed to have. But yeah, that was it. Um, so Fred Hicks, our strychnine-filled marathoner, is not doing well. He's pale. You know, he can barely run. Is he in the lead? Yeah, he's in doing, this condition. Yeah, yeah, he's he's doing very well. Apparently, the rat poison is working wonders. Mm-hmm. He's not carrying a nest for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> he's a serious runner, and I guess he hears that Hicks has been disqualified. And so like, you know, he thinks he's lost the race, and then it's like that dude was in a car. You can still win, you know, through your you know, through your poisoned haze, through your toxic haze. So he starts, you know, forcing himself to run. And uh, they give him a second uh, a second helping of rat poison, this time with some brandy to wash it down. Oh. A little chaser. This, this is reminiscent of those early Tour de France's where all the, all the guys were smoking cigarettes. Oh, is that true? You, yeah. would, you would smoke as you... <laughs> yeah, you see a picture of him and there's like, a guy stops, lights up and keeps riding. Oh, they would do it on breaks. I was having a hard time imagining them, you know, some French guy with a with galoises between his teeth, like feel, on the bike. I feel like I've seen it, but maybe maybe it was just a publicity shot. <laughs> he, uh, well, you know what they say, like strychnine before liquor, never sicker, uh-huh. or, or whatever. Uh-huh. Red skies at night, sailors delight. <laughs> so he's now, he's now full of rat poison and brandy, and um, the race officials uh, are describing his condition like this: his eyes were dull, lusterless. The ashen color of his face and skin had deepened. His arms appeared as weights well tied down. He could scarcely lift his legs. So this guy's heading for the finish line in this, you know, drugged condition. He's hallucinating. He now thinks he's back at the beginning of the race. He's on nothing but brandy and egg whites. You know, he's, he's having the worst day. Of, and there's still two hills to go. He walks, he walks up the last one and then jogs down. And uh, by the time he gets to the stadium, he's just like barely, you know, he's walking like Don Amici. He's some super old man. They lift him up and like two guys are lifting him and carrying him across the finish line. Like on their shoulders or they're carrying him. So his toes are touching. The yeah. Dirt. I think he's still sort of nominally moving his legs <laughs> like it, with some very murky understanding of the rules here. They're like, look, he's still running. Uh, and he's awarded, you know, he crosses the finish line in that condition and just collapses and is like on the ground for, for four hours while doctors work on him. Uh, but on the plus side, he won the 1904 Olympic marathon and he went back and re- he ran marathons again. So apparently he recovered. Wow. So, what a story of triumph. Exactly. A real triumph of the human spirit that you can just 
eat rat poison and, and brandy for an hour and uh, totally dehydrate yourself. And But you presume that he, I mean, nobody was surviving on their income as, an, as a marathoner at this point. He's a regular guy. He's probably working in a print shop or something. He's got a right? job, you know. He's working at a construction site or... And that was true. These were all amateur athletes at the time. I mean, they're pro I mean, with very few exceptions, there probably were no professional celebrity athletes, right? Like who? A few boxers, maybe. Like who's making a living at sports in 1904, you know? What were the sports? I guess crew. What were the other sports? Oh, well, there was baseball and football by this point, but not really professional. There, you know, there were professional leagues, but I'm sure in the off season, even like, you know, these big baseball stars were off at a, you know, <laughs> being lumberjacks in Oregon or something, right? I mean, I, I just assume it was not a career. Yeah, if you, if you played for the Yankees, it was like you got a, a three hots and a cot. Yeah, the only well-paid athletes were like racehorses, you know, like right. uh, Manowar or, or whatever. You know, he was the... Uh, the best treated athlete of his time. Nobody was given that guy rat poison, I bet. Or sailboats. I bet I bet racing sailboats, although it probably didn't earn any money, you had to be a rich person in the first place. You probably got a got a crystal goblet. Yeah, it's interesting. Were these all rich people uh, you know, you in do, doing these things in their free time like our uh, like our Sarasota golfer and, you know, the I'm sure in some sports there was. I mean, who has or were they time? just blue collar? Who has time to sit around? I mean, maybe the weightlifters were just guys that worked in a steel mill. That's what I'm thinking. Like all these rich people, most of them couldn't have been in shape for the real sports. It probably divides on whether you actually need to have any kind of level of fitness. Right. And if you don't, that's a sport of the rich. Right now, there are giant cockroaches in the future who are also golfers <laughs> who are super mad that you are impugning the reputation of golf as not a real sport. Oh, maybe golf's a real sport. I don't know. You're right. I would sort of include golf on that list. But you don't have to really be in any kind of shape to golf. Doesn't can, golf barely exist now? You like, can be a giant cockroach we just established. Like, what are the odds that there's golfing in the after the in the post-atomic age? Hmm. Like, I feel like golf sort of seems old-timey now. We have to ask about sport. Like, which ones are obvious? Like, running is obvious. But that's not necessarily true. Like... I feel like tug of war is one of the most obvious sports. Yeah, get a bunch of guys together, see who can pull the other one on a rope. Um, and at the time, I think tug of war actually was an Olympic sport. You could get a medal for tug of war. I mean, I remember but in, now in, in elementary school we had tug of war during field day. Didn't you have tug of oh, war? Yeah, yeah, it's huge. Uh, it's like uh, it's like what they said about soccer for many years. You know, because fifth and sixth graders were doing it, eventually it was going to catch on. But it never happened to tug of war. Tug of war is huge in the fifth grade. That doesn't mean we're all watching <laughs> tug of war on ESPN. <laughs> I bet you there's a tug of war channel. I bet you there is when you get up into the 800s on your cable. Like ESPN Quattro, it's <laughs> when it's all that world's strongest man stuff. Like, then this guy's going to throw the stump. I guess they don't have tug of war there because it's a team sport. You never see a, there's no, is there any uh, singles tug of war? Like, uh, or mixed doubles, like just a guy and his wife uh, out doing tug of war against, <laughs> against the Johnsons. I mean, you remember there was an entire Sil Sylvester Stallone movie about uh, arm, arm wrestling. wrestling. Yeah. Over the top, when uh, arm wrestling was briefly on every lunchbox. <laughs> uh, I often think back about past trends like that, and I wonder: was that actually a thing, or did were they was somebody just trying to make it a thing? Like, does over the top exist because arm wrestling was briefly popular, or or, or vice did, versa? Yeah, was somebody trying to get arm wrestling over? I mean, you think about the top, mechanical bull riding. <laughs> <laughs> which was also a uh, a one movie phenomenon, uh, but but a big thing at the time. 
And I and I think that mechanical bull riding it started right at Gilly's Bar in somewhereville, Texas, Dallas, probably. It was one bar that had this mechanical bull. Well, did they have some like mad scientist type in the back who had built this thing and nobody knew what it was? Well, like, maybe it was actually some Radio Shack nerd. It's like, hey, it's like riding a bull, but we can put it like by the pinball machine. Maybe they invented it to train actual bull riders, but these guys were the oh, first ones to put it in a bar. I see. It's like a training device yeah it would these guys get it recreationally be like a bar that was full of rowing machines <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be my next thing come on down to the coxman <laughs> it's a gay bar <laughs> well the funny thing is the marathon started out like that too you know it was just one of these hey this is going to be a thing we'll make people run 26 miles right and maybe that's why these guys are using it as a scientific experiment because you know what happens the limit of human achievement. We've never actually seen anybody run 26 miles. You know? What happens if someone runs 26 miles and we follow them in a car shooting them with arrows? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the next year. We're getting ahead of ourselves. But it's funny that the marathon actually has become not just an established part of sporting culture, but a hobby. Yeah. You know, I'm sure we all have, you know, a half dozen friends who run marathons and half marathons. I know? know too many people that run marathons, even seemingly normal people. So maybe it worked all, you know, if, if not for, uh, these mad scientists, you know, testing the limits of human marathon hmm. running with their strychnine and, and dust clouds and no water stations. But it seems like this is in the category of ancient memes that you invent and profit not at all from. It's true. Right? Like nobody got rich promoting marathons as a, as a early 20th century meme. Is there marathon merch? Like, uh, huh. There's, there's definitely like the bumper stickers, marathon culture of water bottles and, and like little shorts that wick away sweat, <laughs> but, and the, whatever you put on your nipples so they don't bleed, but it can't be a billion dollar industry. There's no way. And plus, you know, anybody can make a bumper sticker. Like you can't copyright the number 26.2. That's the genius of that. There's no, you know, the, the, there there's no are, intellectual property for a fraction. I, I have to wonder about, you know, this is kind of like the Da Vinci perfect ratios or whatever we we all in music we talk about a three minute pop song as being precisely the limit of a human attention span that's what the brain craves yeah three minutes and if you go over three minutes you're just you're giving them too much if you go you know anything between two fifteen and three is right in the sweet spot of making people want to hear it again Hitchcock used to say movie length would be related to the, the capacity of the human bladder. Like he also believed there was a physiological component. Hmm. And I wonder 26.2, what, what perfect ratio that represents. I mean, beyond the fact that the queen wants to be able to hear her crying baby. It's just a coincidence. It's where the battle was, you know, if, if Plutarch is to be believed. Right. The funny thing is today, now that um, marathon running has become a hobby, it no longer seems like a superhuman, you know, achievement for our, our best and fleetest of foot. So there actually is a movement, I think, among many elite marathon runners to actually change the marathon, to make it 30 miles or, you know, to make it more of an elite thing. And there's, there's all these other sort of punish yourself, strychnine kinds of events now, you know, double marathons and I'm going to run... 100 milers. Sure. And I'm going to Ragnaroks and I'm going to run 90 miles in a day and a night and a day, or I, I don't even know how these things work, but it really, it does seem to just be made up to, uh, to make a marathon for marathoners, you know, something that seems like a marathon, even if you know, a marathon is something your sister can do now. Well, you know, our culture spends so much time trying to dismantle elites, but in this instance, we we're want really encouraging people to make 
make it more and more elitist. I am never going to run a marathon, Ken. It's one of the things I can say pretty confidently. Uh, there are people who do. There are people who never run marathons and then in the middle of their lives. Just they, decide. They decide I'm going to start training what about, for it. What about you? Do, you? do you keep it in the back of your head like one day maybe I'm going to be the, the Cuban bricklayer who cuts the bottoms off of his pants and, and runs 26 miles? When I'm running, you know, Green Lake by my house, you know, if I'm running a three mile course, you know, I never think I would love to do this eight or nine times in a <laughs> row, you know, but that's what marathoners don't either. Like even when you're training, you never do a full marathon until the day. Like, really? you, you, yeah, I think, I think that's true. You get up to like 18, you know, you run up to three quarters of a mile and that's it. Like, it's just so bad for you. Right. That you don't want to do it any more than necessary? You don't even want to put it in your brain what it feels like. It's just like, oh, it's just like 18 miles except a little bit And then more. you got to do that thing you you barely did once and then just run for eight miles. Yeah. You know, <laughs> back to back. At that um, point, you're almost there. I guess you don't want to, you don't want to use it up in rehearsal. You know, you want to save something for the day. Right. So, you know, I'm sure it's not as out of reach as I feel like it is. But, you know, when I run three or four miles and I feel very tired, I never think, hey, let's do this like five or six more times. Yeah. I never run three miles, but I, I injured myself as a young man. So I can't really, I can't run like that. What if you had a nest? Hmm. If there was a nest 18 miles away? Yeah. What if they tell you, Hey, there's a really good nest <laughs> at the end of this, at uh, the end of this path. I might be tempted. <laughs> well, that concludes the Olympic marathon of 1904. This is entry number 865.1C. 0924. In the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, giant Futurians. They're giants now? I'm going to have to assume that in order to survive. They've become megafauna, like yeah. those giant beavers that lived in the Ice Age or whatever. I feel like by the time you have, you have reinvented the technology to listen to our gold discs, you also would have to be big enough to like tote them. I wonder if marathons would increase, you know, size would increase if people's stride was longer. You know, if these giant future, futurelings can, you know, can run a mile in, you know, just a minute because it's like 50 steps to them. You know? Right. Or they may skitter. They may be like, what is this running? We, we skitter 26 miles. Sure. They probably evolved faster ways to go than running, but maybe they would still do it as a throwback thing. I mean, we still have the car, but we don't watch, uh, you know, we still let people run in our televised races. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It, it could be like vintage car racing to them. I mean, you know, cockroaches are pretty fast for their size. Imagine if they were, although I guess there would be some structural problems if they were six feet tall. Let's not assume they're insectoid. Like that might be a little racist. Maybe the insects right. are their enemies. Maybe these are the people cowering from the insects in their caves and, and our, our gold records are the only entertainment they have. Right. I'm sorry. It's absolutely true. If, if I was triggering you by talking about giant cockroaches and you are in fact a giant sentient piece of cheese. Who hates cockroaches. Yeah. Or, or like a, I'm let's, I'm going to hope that they're like ants, big trees, slow moving trees. They're probably befuddled by our hour of talk about long distance running then. Right. Well, but maybe they, maybe in order to enjoy our program, they have to slow the recordings way down and our voices are super deep. And it seems like we're talking about something that's happening very slowly. If that's the case, we really don't have to do two of these a week. <laughs> Well, all right. Now, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, tweets are archived at Omnibus Project or at Omnibus Project. Our handles in our day were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I also maintained an Instagram account under the same name, which Ken believed was beneath his dignity. 
Our address for email, which was a popular form of written electronic communication, was theomnibuspodcast at gmail.com. Future listeners, uh, we, John and myself, live in a turbulent, eventful time. We don't know what the future holds. There's much we don't know. We don't know if we're speaking to giant insects, giant blocks of cheese, uh, wise, stately, tree-like creatures who move a millimeter a year. We have no idea what the future holds. In fact, we hope and pray that uh, the dire future we imagine may never exist. If it comes soon, this may very well be the last time we speak to you, but we hope that's not true. We hope to be back with you very soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>